Welcome to the Bethesda Christian Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit yourbcc.org or download our mobile app from the App Store. Good morning. Today is my favorite day of the year. I don't know about you, but it's my favorite day. It's the only 25-hour day in the year, and I love it. Uh, I've already used every minute of my extra hour. Uh, but I hope you, you haven't and you're enjoying your extra time. And maybe you uh, maybe you'll be able to fit in uh, Parkway Christian School's open house. Uh, that would be nice if... If you have children or grandchildren, it's a great, uh, great time to use that extra time. And I'm so glad that uh, we have our school here. It's an excellent, excellent place. I want to say welcome to all of you who may be visiting us today. I met someone new today. I met Claire. I know she's here for the first time. And last, uh, last week at Trunk and Treat, which, by the way, was outstanding, though it was a little bit chilly we had so many people who came onto our property for the first time, and the children just enjoyed it. And I was able to meet some brand new people along with uh, my wife, Julie. And I, some of them said they would be here today. I met a fella named Shade. I don't know if you're here today, Shade, but I hope so. And anyone else, if you're here because you came to Trunk and Treat last week, welcome. We're glad you're here with us. It is... Uh, it's a great day to be here. And we're also looking forward to this week, something big in our country, the election on Tuesday. Uh, I opened the paper this morning. Now, I don't, this is odd for me. It's really strange. I've been in the digital news for many years, and someone came to the door, oh, I don't know, a number of weeks ago, a a very, uh, I guess, a very nice young lady. I didn't meet her, but Julie did. And uh, Julie was moved to uh, begin a subscription to one of the local newspapers. So now on Sunday, it ends up on uh, my front porch. So I open it today, and I haven't looked at the funny pages or the comics in years. So there I, I read Crankshaft. You know, I don't know if you know Crankshaft, but he's this curmudgeon who... Uh, yeah, he's always got something negative to say. So, yeah, he had something good about the election. And Crankshaft was waiting in line to vote, and he said, you know, my vote used to count, but now it doesn't count anymore, not since they've put into practice checks and balances. He said, yeah, Wall Street writes the checks, and the politicians pad their balances. So... Yeah, he's got, he's got a depressing outlook on things. I want to read you something. Crankshaft may have been able to write, actually. It says, another, another election. Much of good in both its near and remote results do we look for. Nevertheless, we are not to overlook its many baleful influences and its wide havoc of virtue and happiness. We are again passing through the great quadrennial demoralization, which sinks into a lower deep tens of thousands of drunkards, which turns into drunkards tens of thousands of the sober, which makes tens of thousands of new liars and makes worse tens of thousands of old ones, 
which cheapens sincerity and simplicity by putting high prices upon intrigue and dishonesty, which puts falsehood for truth and darkness for light and makes ten appeals to passion and prejudice where it makes one to reason. We affirm that this is the general character of a presidential election. A presidential election frightfully lowers the standard of morality, pours tides of wickedness through all ranks and classes, and preys fatally with its rampant vices on num- numberless bodies and numberless souls. Sounds like something Crankshaft could have written for us yesterday. It's pretty scathing. It, uh, it was written in November, but it wasn't written yesterday. It was actually written in November of uh, 1860. So if you think the presidential elections are really terrible now, this is what a man named Garrett Smith wrote about 156 years ago. Smith was a New York businessman. He was a a philanthropist. He was an outspoken abolitionist. And he wrote this regarding the campaign of Abraham Lincoln versus Stephen Douglas. Smith had a passion He was passionate about ending slavery, and that was really a major issue, even presidential elections that preceded that particular one. And at his time then, he saw the country going down a dark, dark road, and indeed it did. It went down the dark road of the Civil War, over 620,000 people lost their lives. That's a time in our country that was really difficult. And maybe it's something to think about. Maybe it's a perspective we should have, even looking forward to Tuesday, if we're thinking along the lines of a crankshaft or uh, that kind of negativity. Yeah, there are some bright spots. This is still the best country in the world to be living in. And yeah, it is. And we are seeking leaders. And, of course, that seeking, it brings out passion. It brings out passion in people. Sometimes their passion in their cause is good. Sometimes their passion in their cause, not so much. Uh, In the Old Testament, I want to uh, talk about this morning, the people uh, were led by leaders that were anointed by God. There was Abraham, There was Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua. And then after Joshua, on through the book of Judges, you read about all the people who led this nation called Israel. And then there was a man named Samuel. Samuel was the final judge. Things changed after Samuel. I want to give you a little background on Samuel because I want to talk a little bit about him this morning. And I'll bring it to you straight from the Scripture. I'll bring it to you from 1 Samuel chapter 7. This is uh, from 13 through 15. It says, Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. They were the enemies of uh, Israel. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to Israel. And Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. So Samuel was a good leader. Great things were happening in his country as he led them. And he had been the leader since he was a young man. 
he succeeded a priest named Eli. And during Samuel's time as the leader of the nation of Israel, the nation enjoyed really a lengthy time of prosperity and uninterrupted peace under the leadership of this man named Samuel. But even under times of prosperity and peace, though there are always some little skirmishes or things that are being taken care of, people are fickle and they're not necessarily behind their leader. They're not always necessarily satisfied with their leader. They're looking for something different. They're looking for something uh, that that leader doesn't do. They're seeking someone else. And the people in Samuel's time, that's what they were doing. And they had a passion about it. I want to bring that to you from 1 Samuel chapter 8. People seeking a new leader. 1 Samuel 8, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. It says, When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the leaders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So these people were passionate. They wanted to change. Now I was asking myself, why? What was it that motivated this change? What was driving these people to bring this demand to a person who had been leading them for many years through really a good time? Well, they said, look, Samuel, there's deceit, there's corruption. Your sons, they've turned aside from what is right. And they turned after dishonest gain, briberies, and they've perverted justice. We want change. And we don't want something minor. We need a big change, a wholesale change. And that's kind of an odd request. They just didn't want to change the leader. They want to change the whole form of government. And think about that for a second. These, it's just a couple of corrupt leaders. And when corruption and injustice are discovered, certainly people demand change. I mean, that's happened locally right in our own community. It's happened in my community. I know it's happened in others. There have been some trustees on township boards who've been accused of taking bribes. The uh, FBI has arrested them, and things are changing. They're going to be, uh, they're probably going to be charged. They likely will not be staying in their offices. So change occurs. But it's not, hey, let's change the entire form of government. We insist on justice when we see injustice. 
whether the wrong is very certain, whether we see it clearly and it's, uh, we know it for a fact, or even sometimes when it's a perceived wrong and we don't have the whole story, it's just kind of an alleged story, will often demand justice. Change has got to happen. And these leaders in Samuel's day, they indicted this, these sons of Samuel, Joel and Abijah. They said, these are criminals. We need change. We don't want just you to sweep them out and put in some new people, which they could have asked for, but they said, make us a king. Make us a king like the other nations. And this is an interesting request. It's somewhat a curious request because there's no doubt they already know what this request will bring. But God said to Samuel, let them know. Tell them what it's going to, tell them what it means to have a king. So Samuel did tell them. And I think it's things they already knew, but Samuel said it because God asked him to, and that's 1 Samuel chapter 8, and I continue, verses 10 through 20. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons, and he will make them serve with chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. So Samuel tells them in no uncertain terms, this is what's going to happen. Taxes, taxes, taxes. And your people are going to be pulled to do all kinds of work. And you are going to become slaves. Knowing all of this, knowing the burden that the monarchy was going to lay upon the people, the elders of these people, they are still insisting, give us a king. And they could have pressed Samuel. They could have heard that and say, hey, Samuel, just get rid of your sons. We'll put in a couple other people. But no, they insisted on an entire change in their government, a wholesale change. Not to be free from government, not to be free from oversight, not to be independent? Wouldn't that have been a different request? Hey, we just want to be independent of you uh, bribe takers and you corrupt people. No, they didn't ask for greater uh, uh, independence from authority. No, far from it. They were seeking a leader. They demanded to be put in submission under an authority. They demanded a whole new form of government. And it just seems a bit of an overreaction to demand this when it's, it's a couple of wayward leaders. So I read it and say, what was the real motive? Was there a deeper motive in these people as they were seeking a leader? Was this just a pretense? 
you know, a story that they needed in order to change the government? Was there something deeper? And perhaps this desire to change was a little bit more longstanding. Maybe it was deeper. Maybe it was already running. Maybe there was an undercurrent. And it seems that there probably was. 150 years earlier, when in the book of Judges, a judge named Gideon had been a victorious leader for uh, the nation, the people sought to make him a king. Gideon was victorious over 135,000 with just 300, a small little army. He had this tremendous victory. And in Judges 8, it says, These, the Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So Gideon was giving them good advice, but yet it seems like this undercurrent. We want to change. We don't want to submit to these judges that God puts over us. 150 years earlier, they were asking for a king, and the people were demanding the change. So what were the real reasons? What was the deeper motivation? And it seems the reason that was stated that Samuel's sons were just corrupt, that was a bit of a story, a bit of a pretense. The deeper motivation, I see a couple. First, the people had lost their faith. They had abandoned their faith. They had abandoned their trust, their confidence, their faith in God. Samuel had led these people for many years under the direction and the hand of Almighty God, and they had been victorious over their enemies. They had reclaimed land that had been taken by the Philistines. They had enjoyed peace and prosperity. But if we go back in time, more than the 150 years to Gideon, we go back 400-some years, when the people walked across dry ground, the dry ground of the Red Sea, and they witnessed the army of Egypt get swallowed up by the Red Sea nearly immediately after. You read the book of Exodus, what happened? The people grumbled. Ah, Moses, why did you bring us out here to die? Really? You just watched an entire army drown. And you're going to say, you're going you're to... You're going to question what's going on? And isn't this what the Lord said to Samuel? Samuel, it's not you they have rejected. It's me. They rejected me as their king. And they've done this since the day I brought them out of Egypt. Until this very day, these people have been rejecting me. And all, although the people saw, they saw the tangible results of God's hand time and time again, Time and time again, they abandoned their faith. What did they see? They saw Moses raise his arms, and they won battles. Joshua, he had the people blow trumpets, and walls fell down, and they were able to take a city. Gideon and his 300 meager men, they lit torches, and they blew trumpets, and 120,000 of the enemy got confused, and they turned on each other. Samuel made an offering to God. Samuel makes this offering to God, and what a curse. God blows thunder, and he threw the Philistines into such a panic that they were routed by the Israelites. 
All these are miracles of God. All these are tangible miracles that the people could see. But what couldn't they see? They couldn't see the invisible hand of God behind this. There was no glorious king leading them into battle. There was no battle cry. The people wanted to see a king. They wanted to see someone at the front. They didn't want the king of kings because they couldn't see him. They wanted their own king. So they abandoned their faith. faith. And number two, deeper motive, they wanted to be like the world. And was this not the motivation that they repeated to Samuel? We want a king, but it's not that we just want a king. We want to be like the other nations. We want a leader like the nations around us. Then we'll be like those other nations. You know, after all, Israel was strange. They were odd. God took them out of Egypt and he used frogs and gnats and flies and locusts. And the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines. How did God get the Ark back? He sent plagues, plagues of tumors that spread evidently by rats. And the Philistines, they sent the Ark back and they sent it with with a tribute of gold, gold shaped into exactly what I just said, tumors and rats. Who wants to win a war with tumors and rats and flies and frogs? No, the other nations, they had kings and they had glorious victories and they led charges with horse and cavalry men and, and they had big victory celebrations with all the plunder. Israel was strange. They were peculiar. They were odd. And it was something, it seems, they detested. They would rather be like the world around them. So they rejected God. And it's implied in their statement to Samuel, they wanted a king like the other nations. They wanted not just a king. They wanted to worship like the other nations too. And that's really, really the, the root of their sin. They wanted to worship like the nations around them. God called them out on it. Samuel, they rejected me as king. And they've rejected me since the time I brought them out of Egypt and I saved them. They've forsaken me and they've been serving other gods. To have a leader like the nations around them that meant they could worship like the nations around them. Shrines and idols and things of gold and silver. The people just didn't want a new leader. They wanted a new God. Now, how can we bring this forward? Can we advance any of this to our time, to this day as we're looking forward to a change in leadership in our own country, as people are seeking a leader? Can we apply any of this? Can we bring it to New Covenant Christianity, 21st century, North America? And I say, yes, we can. And first of all, on Tuesday, go vote. On Tuesday, exercise your right. It's your privilege. It's your duty as a good citizen. Paul the Apostle, he exercised his right at a, a, as a citizen of Rome. He was arrested. He was in Jerusalem. What did he do? He appealed to Rome. He appealed to Caesar. And it didn't matter that Caesar was Nero. 
who was vindictive and cruel and a murderer and he did all kinds of persecution of the Christians, Paul exercised his citizenship despite who the leader was. So we're citizens of this great constitutionally limited republic and it's our duty, it's our right, it's our obligation, it's our privilege as citizens. But we're citizens of a greater nation. We're our citizens of a greater kingdom and it's called the kingdom of God. It's Paul the apostle who wrote, we as Christians are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. And he wrote that in his letter to the Ephesians and to the Philippians, he said, our citizenship is in heaven. We belong to a kingdom that's not of this world. And isn't that not a greater citizenship than what we have right here and now? We have a greater leader. We belong to the kingdom of God. And it has as its ruling leader, Jesus Christ. He is King Jesus. He is the matchless king. We heard this morning as we sung that song at the open. He is the matchless king. He is our ruling leader. And he said in Matthew chapter 28, when he's given the great commission, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. And that means all authority. Whatever the outcome on Tuesday, King Jesus already knows about it, you know? And he has the authority over whomever is going to be that new leader. And you know, God can use sinful leaders. Remember that God used the sinful leader, King Nebuchadnezzar. He used uh, Babel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon uh, to his purpose. He used King Cyrus of Persia to his purpose. And when Jesus stood before Pilate, who was able to set him free or send him to the cross. Pilate said, don't you realize I have power either to free you or crucify you? Jesus said this. He said, you have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. So we have this power over us. And thus we can go out and we can vote and whatever the outcome, we keep our faith and there's, that's, that's an application we can bring forward. Don't abandon our faith like these Israelites did. Remember Elijah in the face of terrible leaders, terrible leaders, King Ahab and King Jezebel, and Jezebel wanted to kill him. And he thought, well, I'm the only one. I am the only one who's holding on to my faith. Why not just kill myself? That's how negative he was. Thought he was the last person standing on earth who believed in God and the leaders were terrible. But God spoke to him and God said, Elijah, there's a lot more. There's thousands more who are staying true and keeping their faith. You know, we might be small in number. Those of us who are truly keeping our faith. We might be a minority. Those of us who cling to Jesus Christ as our king and we refuse to yield to the way of the world, but we're a minority that belong to an eternal kingdom whose ruler is all-powerful. And it's King Jesus who's over the kingdom of God. He is sovereign over all. And we walk with him by faith, not by sight. 
We don't have to be seeing his hand in every single thing, but trust and know that he is over it all. How foolish it was for the people of Samuel's day to abandon the only true source of their power and their strength, the living almighty God. But they did it. They turned from that power and they turned from that strength to a failable man and whom they demanded we want this king to be our leader. And they demanded it in their unbelief and in their pride. And if you're disappointed on Tuesday, do not turn away from the true source of power and strength and peace and righteousness. His name is Jesus Christ and he rules and reigns above all. Put your faith in him. Put your faith in him and keep that faith. And Second, don't be seduced by the world. We're in his kingdom. Seek his kingdom. And what if what is in his kingdom? Desire all the things about the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The people of Samuel's day, they wanted to be like the world. Why? They were different. They were strange. They were oddities to the nations around them. The world around them seduced them, pulled them, and they yielded to that pull, and they rejected God. And they said, we don't want him as our leader, even though he saved them, even though he took them out of bondage and slavery of Egypt, and he prospered them, and he put peace in the land. And that's not too hard to project forward, is it? The seduction of the world is never-ending. It's always there. And as Christians, we are set apart from the world. And I said it last week. We're not of the world, but we're sent into the world to be lights. We're sent into the world not to, not to get pulled by the seduction of the world, but to turn that around, to offer something to the world that they see that's better and wonderful and great and to express our difference and show why being different under the headship and the leadership and the sovereignty of Jesus Christ is the best possible thing that could happen to any single person on this earth. We have something to offer. We do not want to be pulled into the world, but turn it around and go into the world and offer them Christ. But too often, Christians have a difficult time being different, I think. It seems that the aim and the desire of too many who call themselves Christians is to be like the world, to live in conformity to the world's practices and to enjoy the pleasures of the world around them and yet claim this connection to Jesus Christ and his gospel, believing, oh, I've made this claim and somehow it's going to get me some glorious entrance into his kingdom one day while yet they still persist in the ways of the world. And I'm afraid that some of them are like those people who came to Samuel. They desire a leader other than Jesus. And society around us is looking. They are watching us. And so many, so many outside this house of Christianity, they despise us. They despise Christianity. And the world today doesn't despise Christianity, I would say, so much because we're different and we're odd and we're strange. That's not it. No, I think that Christianity is despised because many claim to be different, but they're not different at all. You know what? And the world sees that. It sees this claim and yet doing nothing about it. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter wrote, 
You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And you know, the King James Version uses the word peculiar. God's special possession, you're a peculiar people. Are you peculiar? Are you odd? Are you weird? Are you different? You know, at work, are you the peculiar one that prays before you eat your lunch, that brings your Bible to the office? Have you been called out of darkness into his marvelous light? Israel was to be a light to the nations around them. In Leviticus 19, the Lord said, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This is a call to to bring in the world, to be the light. That's an Old Testament command. It's a New Testament command. In the time of Samuel, the nation had been set apart. They were different. They were unique. They were God's special uh, possession. They were a kingdom of priests and a holy nation to be God's holy people and his treasured possession. They were to be this light into the world. And they could have asked God for anything. They could have said, God, give us better strength and power to show your wonderful glory throughout the world. They could have done, they could have asked for anything. But what did they do? They denied God. They denied his leadership. They denied his headship. And they asked to be separated from him. And they snubbed God. We're part of a greater kingdom. We are now part of this new covenant kingdom with King Jesus Christ at the helm. And there are no borders to that kingdom on this earth. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is not of this world. God has called us to be different. He has called us to be his holy, peculiar people. And part of that difference means that we behave differently. We show ourselves differently. And when our leaders are corrupt and we don't like them or the person that was voted into office isn't the person we voted for. Yeah, that's not the time to say, I'm done and I'm moving to Canada and all that jazz. I mean, I, must, I, I hear that every single election. Oh, if this person doesn't win, I'm moving to Canada. That's it, I'm done. Give up your citizenship, really? No, we're different. God calls us to pray for those people that have been put above us. Pray for our leaders. Don't, don't rail against them. This is what Paul wrote to Timothy. You know, Paul was writing this and he perhaps was under arrest and he was being kept in his own house as a prisoner under Caesar Nero. And he writes this to Timothy. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Imagine that you're Timothy, and you're getting a letter from your friend Paul. He's off in Rome. He's probably been imprisoned, and he's under this notoriously cruel dictator named Nero. And he writes you these things. 
Pray for the king. Do the right thing. Can you hear Timothy thinking out loud? Seriously, Paul? You want me to pray for Nero? Not just pray. Not just pray. I got to intercede. I have to be thankful? Really? Really? He didn't write to Timothy and say, Dear Timothy, go start a change.org petition and we need to impeach Caesar because he's such a terrible leader. No, he said, pray for him. Pray for him. Intercede. Give thanksgiving. And what does that do for us as Christian people? It marks us as different and as unique and as peculiar. And we're not going to go rail against our government. We exercise our rights as good citizens But what a shame if anyone who who claims to be in the kingdom of Christ would break away from these things which render us Christians and make us set apart and different from the world and just choose to indulge in the ways of the world and the things that make the world what they are. Jesus died. Jesus Christ gave his life so that we could be called out of the darkness and into the light. And he's he's been granted authority over all. So Tuesday, exercise your good privilege in your right as a citizen and vote. And vote your conscience and know that whatever the outcome, whatever the outcome, you're going to keep your faith in Jesus Christ. You're going to be reminded that he's in control. And he can use, he can use a sinful leader for his purposes and then pray Pray for that new leadership. We need to do that. Jesus died to give us this fabulous right and this great, uh, this great opportunity to live in his kingdom.